This is a TV spot for the Ben Stiller movie Zoolander, as it aired on WNYW television that morning. The world needed a hero, but what it got? Crashed? Jim, just a few moments ago, something uh, believed to be a plane crashed into the south tower of the World Trade Center. I just saw flames inside. You can see the smoke uh, coming out of the uh, of the tower. We have no idea what it was. It was a tremendous boom just a few moments ago. You can hear around me emergency vehicles heading towards the scene. Now, this could have been a, uh, an aircraft or it could have been something internal. Uh, it appears to be something coming from the outside uh, due to the uh, nature of the uh, opening uh, on about the hundredth floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Within a couple of hours, on the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, we knew for certain it was not something internal. It was not, as some newscasters first surmised, perhaps hopefully, a small airplane, and it was not an accident. It was a planned and coordinated terror attack that killed thousands and destroyed two of the most iconic buildings of the New York City skyline. Like Pearl Harbor, the Kennedy assassination, and the Rodney King verdict, 9-11 was one of those moments that became a hinge of American history. There was life before it and life after. New York City changed forever. And was as always the case with an event like that in the city, its films changed too. Initially, those changes were cosmetic as filmmakers and studios wrestled with how to address this life-changing event in films shot in the city before and after the attacks. But one quintessential New York filmmaker took the boldest route and made what has become the definitive post 9-11 movie. Today, we're going to tell the story of that movie, as well as the industry's struggle with New York City cinema in the weeks and months after September 11th. To guide us through it, we have three of our favorite pop culture writers, Roxana Haddadi. Bullshit, Jason. Bullshit. Keith Phipps. Is it movie called Don't Tell Us All, or is that just a tagline? And Scott Tobias. Should I use the first person here? And we have filmmaker and actor Jennifer Westfeld. Let's talk. Tell me all the things. I'm Jason Bailey, and this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it. The city of New York, we've got a system. Not much, but we're fond of it. I love this dirty town. God, I hate this town. Welcome to New York. <laughs> yeah, it's real exotic in Rikers Island, too. Who's this fucking guy? Get the fuck out of here! Let's go, Yankees! Where the hell do you want to move to? This goddamn city. You gonna move? Fuck that, man. Fun City Cinema by Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. Is there a terrorist cell operating in Brooklyn? Yes. Fuck this whole city and everyone in it. I'll tell you what, Bin Laden could drop another one right next door. I ain't moving. You're a New Yorker. That will never change. You got New York in your bones. Spend the rest of your life out west, but you're still a New Yorker. I don't mean to interrupt the fun, but uh, <laughs> this is a breaking news story, a serious news story. What? A plane has crashed, hold it, into the World Trade Center. You're kidding! 
the World Trade Center is on fire. I'm standing on the top of my roof, and I'm looking at the World Trade Center, and there's a huge hole in it, and there's a fire in the building. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. I heard the plane very close to the top of the buildings. I looked outside, and I saw it hit, and it exploded immediately. Did you uh, manage to see what kind of plane it was? I couldn't tell. It, it was a smaller plane. It looked like a smaller plane, but I couldn't tell. Not, oh I'm God. not really sure. Oh, my God. That looks like a second plane. It appears another plane yep. just flew into... But both Twin Towers now are on fire. Now, this was not the case. Am I correct? A couple of moments ago. The second plane, and you can oh. see it there. Oh. Where? Oh. I didn't see it. Oh, whoa. Oh, my God. We're under attack. So this looks like it is some sort of a concerted effort to attack the World Trade Center that is underway in downtown New York. FBI is uh, almost verified that there's been hijacked early this morning before the crash. Really? Oh, so they hijacked the plane. Oh, my goodness. The White House has been threatened with a terrorist attack. That word coming just moments ago. Uh, the west wing of the White House has been evacuated as a precaution. Uh, also, there is a fire and an explosion at the Pentagon this morning. I need you to stop for a second. There has just been a huge explosion. We can see uh, a billowing smoke rising, and I can't, I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower. Oh my God, the building fell! Are you there? The building just fell! Which, which building? Oh my God, the south building just, the south building just crumbled from the top! Oh my God, the building just fell! That is about as frightening a scene as you will ever see. Right, we so gotta go bomb everything over there now. We gotta bomb the hell out of them. You know who it is. I can't say, but I know who it is. Oh my god. Oh, I saw the building crumble. It's all the way down. I can't see, I can't see at what point it's still standing. Oh my god. You know what? This is our worst nightmare. You knew this was gonna happen one day. And it's happened. Well, it's because we never settle anything. You That's know right. I gotta and we you. don't and we don't face the fact that the you know, and I'm not saying it's the Arabs who did this, I don't know yet, but I'm guessing the Arab world has to be taught a lesson. That we are the boss and you are going to be our dogs and you have gotta be spanked. Can you do me a favor, please? Yeah. Please not be the leader of these thoughts right now. In Washington there has there is a large fire at the Pentagon. The Pentagon has been evacuated. And there's, you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. Good Lord. What just happened? Oh, my God. What oh, the whole, happened? Look at that. Oh, the whole World Trade Center just collapsed. Oh, my God. The whole thing just completely oh dropped. It actually collapsed. That's it. Oh, my God. Anybody who had a chance of getting out of there. It collapsed. The second building of the World Trade Center going Yes, that is the second, that is the second tower. That is the second tower. There are no words. Plumes of smoke coming out and then absolutely nothing. You can see large pieces of the building falling. You can see the smoke rising. Nearly 3,000 people were killed in the 9-11 attacks, most of them in New York City. 
civilians working in the World Trade Center, passengers and flight crew in the airplanes, firefighters, police officers, and EMTs in the towers and on the ground. It was the most devastating single act of terrorism in the country's history. And most people watched as it happened, live on television. The images they saw of urban destruction and buildings on fire were familiar from disaster and action cinema, echoing scenes from the towering inferno and Die Hard and Independence Day. Everyone kept saying, looks yeah. like a movie. It is, um, yeah, it does. It looks like a, a uh, movie special effect. So let's do this a little bit earlier than usual. I'm going to bring in my co-host, Mike Hall, here, because a lot of what we're talking about here is is personal interaction and reflection and sort of how this movie captures a mood. And like, we were both in New York on 9-11. I was on my way out of town. You were living there then. Yeah, for almost a year, a little less than a year at that point. Right. And I was supposed to fly back home, back to Kansas that morning. I was on a flight that morning. Joke's on you. <laughs> and then a uh, uh, one of your roommates' moms called and said, you guys should turn on the TV. And we also watched this as it happened. And right away, you know, we talked about it a lot that day and in the days after as I stuck around a little longer than anticipated. And uh, Mike, you, I, I think this is fair to say, uh, from from that morning, did not feel about 9-11 the way that we were going to be told to feel about it. That's a fair assessment, yes? Yeah, the whole... There, there was this real sense from the very beginning that it was unpatriotic or wrong or whatever to want to understand why they would do something like this. Because, of course, we knew, you know, we gave us bin Laden weapons to fight against the Russians in the 80s, right? So, like, we've known about him and trained him and, and you know, given him money and given him... So, like, we have been interacting with this guy, but not just because of our interactions with him and the skills that we know he has because we taught him, but also because of of interviews that he's done and, and you know, public statements that they've made and, like, basically press releases that they put out after their earlier terrorist attacks. You know, we could understand what their beef was, which to understand their motivation does not mean to agree with it. Or to minimize the, the, the scope of the tragedy of that day. Like, that we can hold two thoughts in our head at the same time was not a real um, a popular notion uh, in America's circa fall of 2001. We know what al-Qaeda and, and bin Laden were mad about, right? Which was a, a bunch of, like, bases in Saudi Arabia and shit that, like, the workers of, you know, windows of the world <laughs> have nothing to do with, right? Right. So we, we know that they have made this decision to attack and kill civilians, Right. Right. Their their previous high profile attacks were against a U.S. Navy ship and an embassy in Kenya. So that sort of maintains a facade of legitimate military targets. Right. But with the World Trade Center, we now know that they've made the decision to kill civilians. And that's mm -hmm. bad. That's unequivocally mm -hmm. bad. We most of us can agree on that. But right. it's unpopular then and now to point out that we also cause a lot of morally objectionable death. Right. With our military exploits and our intelligence services and our supportive dictators, we always bust Bush's balls about this because he's the one that invaded, you know, was president when all of these things happened. But, you know, under Clinton, there was sure. sanctions against Iraq. 
right? Like massive sanctions against Iraq. And and there were international aid agencies that were saying that these sanctions killed a half million Iraqi children. And when they asked, you know, uh, Albright, right? Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State for Clinton, was on, uh, was being interviewed, and they asked her about this number. She didn't dispute the number, right? First of all, Jesus. secondly, her response was, "We think it's worth it," right? And then Bin Laden <clears throat> goes and uses this interview in his recruiting for Al Qaeda. Right. So, like, you know, you said, like, hold two thoughts in our head at the same time. It's bad for them to kill innocent civilians. It's also bad for us to do it. Right. But but there was no sort of uh, there was no space to acknowledge both of those things at that moment. And, and, And no one who has the kind of platform that Spike Lee has, especially in that kind of area, was even attempting to deal sure. with those feelings. And to approach it with any kind of thoughtfulness or nuance, even though he's not explicitly like he's not playing the clip of Madeleine Albright the way he would if he were making a Spike documentary. But it's still like subtextually, thematically present that this is not black and white. He's sad. He doesn't just want to go murder people. He's sad. Like, (laughs) I mean... To me, that's that's there's there's value even just in that. And and that was a way that I felt in that kind of space. And and that and there just wasn't any room for that. And the degree to which I think it's important, I guess, too, to understand the degree to which the horror of the act was such that we were able to focus on that at the expense of these other conversations like that by choosing a, you know, a. Uh, a target where so many innocent civilians were killed, it was very hard to ask these questions. And people in those, in that period that asked them were not dealt with kindly. You know, few things in our lives have been so, as you said, immediately flattened into platitudes. The point was just kind of wave the flag and lots of military spending. And they passed the Patriot Act, which, you know, lets them break all kinds of Fourth Amendment rules to spy on us. And, you know, they did all these different things that they had been wanting to do. And by they, I mean, of course, Rumsfeld and Cheney and, you know, all these kind of protégés of Kissinger, literally people who were in the Nixon administration. But I don't just mean them. Yeah. (laughs) The Patriot Act was overwhelmingly approved. Barbara Lee was the was the only person to vote against the authorization to go in Afghanistan, a, a place that is literally nicknamed the graveyard of empires, right? So <laughs> it didn't take a fucking genius to see how that was going to work out, as right. we've seen. And, and we've recently. seen, yes, exactly. Right. But these decisions are bipartisan, and that's how our government sucks when we're not talking about party or specific politicians because the fucking war machine pays everybody, right? They don't care about your affiliation. And anyway, military spending has been the biggest jobs program in this country since the 40s. And it affects every state. These bombs are made in every state. The planes are made in every state. We got kids from every state going over there and dying. Like, it is an intentional effort to wrap us all into this fucking death machine to wrap us all in the flag and then put that flag in the death machine you know and it's just a way to spread around all this money man yeah giuliani starts using it as a way to reinvigorate his political career bush came and stood on the pile of rubble and shit you know and like hugged the construction worker and 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 then left and let that guy get cancer so talk to me a little more about sort of because we're going to talk a lot in this episode about 
how this film captures the the overall feeling of being in New York in that fall. And you talked about that a little bit more, but like, I mean, just being like on the train, on the street, going from place to place, resuming living a life. What was that feeling in that period? I don't know. I mean, it just, it felt dangerous in a way that it hadn't before, you know, because I had not been really up in the towers very much. It was a major train hub, right? So I'd spent a lot of time in the train area below, and I had spent, you know, a lot of time in the kind of shopping area, the mall area, right, that was, you know, just above the trains. And then I had actually been to the top. You're on top of the South Tower. That was, when you went up there, you know, that was the one that you walked around on. The North Tower was, you know, TV antennas and phone antennas and shit, right? So people didn't really walk around on that one. But as a result of that, if you were standing on the South Tower and the person taking the photograph was to the south of you, then behind you, you've got the North Tower and all of New York City stretching out. So I didn't lose a spouse, you know, or sibling in that kind of a way. But like my life was definitely changed, you know, in terms of like I felt that that loss. It, It very quickly became especially with all the kind of cops on the corner, you just tried to get out of there as quickly as possible. You know, the bars were empty. And that's one thing about, you know, the financial district. It's like, you know, everybody's off work by 4 o'clock, but, you know, the bars are loud until, you know, 9.30, right? So it, it just became very, like, put your head down. And then, of course, it was winter not very long after that, right? A couple months after that. Yeah, I mean, it just felt, ominous in a way that New York is just not really ominous, dude. It's just too fucking loud for that, you know, right? There's very rarely that kind of sense. But it was one of those things where there was still a lot of people there. They were just all very quiet. Well, one of the things we should talk about then as we sort of get into the story of this film is that, you know, that sort of ominous mood in the days and weeks after was not confined to New York. And... It seemed to me, as someone who was always paying attention to sort of entertainment news, that within a few days of the attacks, I was already starting to hear things about movies and television shows and album covers and things that were going to be delayed or changed because were we ever going to enjoy escapist entertainment again? Was irony dead? But more specifically, what were we going to do about all of these films and television shows that dealt with acts of terrorism and, frankly, that dealt with New York City at all? You know, I spent much of 9-11 itself struggling to write a big trouble review just to have something to do. This is Keith Phipps. Keith is a pop culture writer. In September of 2001, he was the assistant editor of the AV Club. And then halfway through, I was like, wait a minute, this movie's never going to come out. (laughs) You know, I'm just going to put this down and and not finish this review. Big Trouble did eventually come out several months after its original September release date, reworked and reshot to minimize the airplane hijacking elements of this jaunty Barry Sonnenfeld crime comedy. Other movies with potentially uncomfortable subject matter were delayed as well, including the Arnold Schwarzenegger terror attack thriller Collateral Damage and the Jack Ryan reboot The Sum of All Fears. These were pretty easy calls, but for other films and their creators, there were more complicated questions. We 
debuted the movie on uh, September 10th. That was our our premiere in Toronto. That's filmmaker and actor Jennifer Westfeld. And in September of 2001, she was at the Toronto International Film Festival with Kissing Jessica Stein, for which she was co-writer and co-star. I was actually with my sister Amy in a screening of Monsoon Wedding, um, which had started at 8 a.m. because I was so um, ready to just like see movies all day long after we premiered. You know, I was like, I'm at an international film festival for the first time in my life and I'm going to see everything, you know. Um, and they didn't stop the movie and we got out of the movie and everything felt really weird. Um, I had something like 43 messages on my cell phone and no service and couldn't hear the messages and so everything felt weird and no one had service and just the unrest that I remember was so you kind of just knew immediately something was so off and um and I I remember hearing somebody passing saying yeah it's because of the bombs in New York and I was like what and so we didn't know until we got back to the hotel and you know it just uh it became just like a sob sob festival in the hotel room like not leaving ever and uh not being in your own country or your own city when this was happening was such a very strange strange surreal experience and at some point that day in that hotel room and simultaneously throughout the industry these filmmakers realized something about their movie and of course we had gloriously beautiful shots of the skyline and the towers in all over the movie. Um, yeah, and I I remember hearing, I didn't go to see the second screening, and everyone said there was just like audible gasps every time there was a shot of the skyline and like, you know, cries. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't witness that, but it just seemed brutal. Um, so yeah, that led to a very, very long, uh, in-depth uh, conversation uh, among all of us and among all of our peers and mentors and, you know, fellow filmmakers and, you know, uh, so many people just trying to figure out what, what we should do. There's still a trickle of movies coming out that had shot the Twin Towers as part of the skyline. And, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was weird to erase it. It was, it was strange to see it again. Uh, they were just there, just this one of the defining features of New York. I mean, I, I, you know, I get it. This is Scott Tobias, who was also writing for the AV Club at the time. I mean, I, I think that the thought was like just seeing those towers would, would, would trigger an emotional response that was, you know, not great for a movie like Zoolander. Um, uh, you know, I, and now from a distance, it all seems very craven and and it's it silly um but you know at the time you know it was a much different feeling because because i think you know people were were understandably so raw uh, about it i i get it that that if you're putting out you know zoolander in a, a couple of weeks or you're putting out in the fall and, and you're, you're hoping that people are gonna be ready to laugh maybe that's a good idea we ended up removing those shots and, and replacing them uh, with some other pretty shots that weren't that part of downtown. And, you know, our movie was coming out in March, so it was just, we just determined that it was too raw and too painful. And, and in this genre where we were trying to spread some joy and some, you know, any tears would be sort of um, 
you know, laughing and tears at the same time, not really like traumatizing people. So it just felt like it just felt like the right thing to do on that timeline. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, how we would have felt if it wasn't coming out for a couple of years or if it was a different style of film. Um, but that was the decision we kind of agonizingly came to um, on that score. Yeah. Westfeld and her collaborators weren't the only ones to make that call. The makers of not only Zoolander, but Serendipity, Stuart Little 2, Igby Goes Down, and People I Know chose to digitally remove the towers from the New York skyline, or edit out shots in which they appeared. The climax of Men in Black 2, originally set in the World Trade Center complex, was relocated. And a teaser trailer for the following summer's Spider-Man, in which the hero captures a helicopter and a web spun between the towers, was hastily pulled from theaters. The scene was cut from the film before its release, and a few of its skyline shots were digitally altered as well. In the process of making those cuts, the filmmakers also added a new scene of working-class New Yorkers saving Spider-Man from the Green Goblin and mouthing familiar post-9-11 sentiments. You mess with Spider, you mess with New York! You mess with one of us, you mess with all of us! A few filmmakers went the other way. Cameron Crowe left the towers intact in the fantasy version of New York that ends his Vanilla Sky, released that December. And when Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York hit theaters in December 2002, it ended with a series of images of the New York skyline sprouting through the ages. Scorsese's final version of that skyline included the World Trade Center. And films that were already in theaters or on their way there stayed as they were as well. I remember going to a press screening of Don't Say a Word, and you get a brief glimpse of them there, and the audience just kind of kind of caught their breath, but also kind of felt good to see it. Same with uh, uh, Glitter, the Mariah Carey movie, which was released just before, just after 9-11. Um, but for the most part, movies just stayed away from it. A less direct shift occurred in mainstream movie making in the months after September 11th. Uh, representatives of the Bush administration, including Karl Rove, met at least twice with entertainment executives and studio heads. According to the nation's Mark Cooper, Rove insisted he was not there to give marching orders, but merely to brief executives on the messages that the White House wished to stress in popular culture at that moment, including, this is a global war that needs a global response, Americans should support the troops, and this is a war against evil. Luckily for Rove, several war movies were already in the can and slated for release in the coming months, and some of them were moved up on the release schedule to take advantage of the flag-waving mood. Behind Enemy Lines was hurried out in November, Black Hawk Down in December, and We Were Soldiers the following March. And I remember thinking when all of this was happening, like, okay, so like, this is mask off, right? This is film and TV writer Roxana Haddadi. This is propaganda, mask off, we're not pretending anymore. This isn't like the 80s when things were, you know, very obviously about the Cold War, but you could still sort of like couch them in like teen adventure or like romantic comedy, you know? It just felt like we were getting very explicit in terms of what the country's priorities were and whose voices mattered within those priorities. And I don't really think that's changed a ton to be honest. I remember when they did start to come back, it was almost like 
do we have do we have to do this? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think some of all fears was one of the first ones and my, my coworker Scott Tobias basically said, you know, the, the America needs its, its head examined if they want to watch this kind of stuff again. But you know, here so twenty years later it's 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 not unusual in the least bit. I mean, Roland Emmerich was not put out of business by uh, by 9-11, just maybe you know, temporarily uh, had to redirect what he was what he was directing for a while. But I'll be honest, I can't see the America that I grew up in ever doing anything different. You know, like I, when I think about, so September 12th is my birthday. And so when I think about that day, I very much remember the fear and the anxiety of that and knowing that things were gonna get bad. Like as a Middle Eastern person, that is profoundly what I felt. Things were gonna get bad. And on September 11th at school, there was like an altercation with the classmate who said something about my dad being a terrorist. And you know, like that was like the knee jerk reaction of a lot of people. And I don't think that has changed. So where would that leave a New York director with a film in pre-production on 9-11 planning to shoot in the city that fall and winter? Everywhere where at that time, any image of, of the World Trade Center, they took out the movie? Yeah. That's Spike Lee with his star Edward Norton on the commentary track for 25th Hour. There are movies where Spider-Man, I think, I think it was Spider-Man or some other stuff where you could even show an image of not, of, of the World Trade Center. He said, we're not doing that. No, and I and I think that what I what excited me was that when you got talking about it, it was like, we're still going to make the 25th Hour. We're going right. to make Monty Brogan's story but we're gonna weave it into the the fabric and 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 you so become a character, it, right? Yeah, and it was like it was like looking at what it was like looking at the impact of 9/11 without, but without dealing it directly. It was it was like looking at it through the angle of another story, but the melancholy that the city was full of in right. that year afterwards. I feel like, I feel like the impact of 9/11 emotionally is all through this movie, you know. That, that's not Spike Lee's instinct. His instinct is to document the city and, and make that documentation part of all of his films, not just 25th Hour. And on top of that, I think that the way, the way you should kind of look at 25th Hour is that everyone in New York was living, you know, with the presence of 9-11 in their lives. Even if, even if it wasn't directly related to their day-to-day um, it is an unseen and, and looming pre- presence, psychological presence, you know, physical presence, even though even though the towers are gone. And I think that's kind of what plays in your mind, even if the actual 9-11 references are, you know, much more scant than you might think. And Scott's right. Lee and his screenwriter, David Benioff, did not change 25th Hour into a film about September 11th. It remains, as it was in Benioff's original novel, the story of a white-collar drug dealer named Monty Brogan, played by Edward Norton, who has one more day of freedom before he goes off to prison for seven years. He spends it looking for closure with his father, played by Brian Cox, his living girlfriend, played by Rosario Dawson, and his childhood friends, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman and Barry Pepper. What got me very excited um, was the way that you sort of said, we're not going to ignore this, you know, we're going to... We're going to weave it into the fabric because the story is a very melancholy story. Lee was careful not to go overboard with the direct references. We had to try to make it as seamless as possible. We didn't want this stuff to seem 
looked like it was a stuck-on appendage. There's only four. <laughs> I have, I've counted them. Uh, there's the tremendously powerful opening credit sequence around the Tribute and Light art, art installation. Uh, there's a shot of a wanted, dead or alive tabloid cover with Osama bin Laden that's scotch taped to uh, a, a broker's door. Um, there's, the, there's the one scene between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Barry Pepper uh, where they talk about, uh, where they peer down on Ground Zero from a high rise and, and talk about, you know, air pollution. And then, and then there, and then Bin Laden and Al Qaeda are worked into, you know, the monologue that that Monty gives in front of the mirror. That's it, that's it. And yet, it does, of course, feel like it has a much bigger presence than that. Before we get to that bigger presence, let's look at those specific references. From March 11th through April 14th of 2002, an installation of 88 searchlights, replicating and extending the fallen towers, was placed at Ground Zero as a tribute of light to those lost on the day. I remember reading a story in New York Times about how they were having these two lights. I mean, lights, they're gonna form the two towers. So we called, you know, and we, and I read it the last day they were gonna do it. So we called them. I said, yeah, come on down. So I think it's a very poignant opening. It's an incredible sequence beginning with these obliquely photographed, almost abstract shafts of light. And the true nature of their presence isn't really clear until the compositions grow wide enough to finally reveal that iconic New York skyline, but with light in absence of those structures. The nature of the tribute is never explained in dialogue. It doesn't need to be. But these beautiful tableaus and the ethereal musical accompaniment by Terence Blanchard they're a powerful substitute for the images you might expect at the beginning of a film about 9-11. Towers falling, New Yorkers fleeing, smoke and debris filling the streets. The Wanted poster was one of many pieces of post-9-11 ephemera that was just part of the look of the city that fall. There's more than a few American flags and backgrounds and occasional inspiring messages about the infallibility of New York scrawled on walls. That's all stuff. We did not fake that. That's this is stuff that we just shot on the street. When it came time to shoot a dialogue scene between Hoffman and Pepper in Pepper's apartment, Lee added a few lines and got specific about the location. I told my production designer, find me a location over overlooked ground zero. I don't even understand how there was an apartment that was- It was an office building. Mm. We can tell me shooting a film, though. I said, please find me somewhere that we can shoot out a window, a little right down upon Ground Zero. Times I read the post, and this is not fake, people. This is not motherfucking special effects. Those people down there are looking for human remains. Yeah, New York Times says the air's bad down here. Oh yeah. Well, fuck the Times. I read the Post. EPA says it's fine. Somebody's lying. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the movie's more chilling moments. The Bush administration had edited those EPA reports, and Mayor Rudy Giuliani helped disseminate the propaganda. In the years that followed, tens of thousands of rescue workers and civilians would seek medical help for what became known as Trade Center Cough, for lung disease, and for worse. 
And then the fourth big addition came in Monty's monologue, in which he excuses himself to the bathroom of his dad's bar, catches a look at himself in the mirror, and sees a fuck you scrawled in the corner. He then embarks on a long, angry, racist diatribe against his city and everyone in it. This is not in the original script. I read it in a novel. I said, David, you got to put this in the script. We, and we, I, I remember when I came to your house one night, we were sitting around the fire, we right. were looking at the script, and I had the book and we had notes, and we both, we both had in the novel, we had both circled right. the mirror monologue. Uh -huh. and, we were, and, and do you remember David said, we said, this is like the defining thing in it, and David said, he said, I just didn't think it was cinematic, and you went, that's my job! <laughs> fuck you too. Fuck me, fuck you. Fuck you and this whole city and everyone in it. No, 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 no. Fucked up panhandlers grubbing for money and smiling at me behind my back. Fuck the squeegee men dirty enough to clean windshield of my car. Get a fucking job. Fuck the Sikhs and the Pakistanis bombing down the avenues in decrepit cabs. Curry steaming out their pores, stinking up my day. Terrorists in fucking training. Slow the fuck down. It's a key moment in the novel, and much of it is adapted verbatim. But Benioff did, understandably, rewrite this passage. Quote, Let the Arabs bomb it all to rubble. Let the waters rise and submerge the whole rat-crazed place. Let an earthquake tumble the tall buildings. Let the fires rain uncontested. Let it burn, let it burn, let it burn. And also this addition was made to Monty's roll call of enemies. Fuck Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and backward-ass cave-dwelling fundamentalist assholes everywhere. On the names of innocent thousands murdered, I pray you spend the rest of eternity with your 72 cores roasting in a jet fuel fire in hell. You towel-headed camel jockeys can kiss my royal Irish ass. But none of those name-checked are the real targets of Monty's rage anyway. No, fuck you, Montgomery Brogan. You had it all and you threw it away, you dumb fuck! To David's credit, like, the, the whole notion of this guy looking into the mirror. everybody, right? Cursing, you know, tearing down everybody who he's ang in his anger about what's happened to him, tearing down everybody. And then, and then com com coming around, A, to basically saying, it's my fault. It's my fault. And what I loved is that when you get to the end of the film, you see that all these same things, all this, all this tapestry of the things he was angry at are the things that he loves the most about the city. About New York City. Yeah. And yet, in spite of the dearth of explicit 9-11 references, we now think of 25th Hour as the cinematic statement on that event. So why is that? So there's the obvious stuff, right? There's the fact that there is ground zero and that they can see it and all of that sort of thing. Here's Roxana Haddadi again. For me, more, you know, metaphorically, I think it is about the end of one way of life and one way of thinking about what this city represents. For me, Edward Norton's character and his downfall almost seems predetermined by everybody in his circle like no one seems very surprised by the fact that he gets caught i think you know and so there is almost this sort of like expectation of this was never gonna last and his success was never gonna last keith phipps puts it another way it is to me it's a film about devastation about what happens after disaster and it's also a film exploring like 
points, like I said, points from which you cannot return. And so in a fairly ingenious way, 25th Hour becomes a movie where 9-11 is both explicitly present and the central metaphor. It's a story in which 9-11 happened. And also this character faces a similar choice to the one we all faced on 9-12 as New Yorkers and as Americans. Something terrible happened. How do we move on from that terrible thing? Do you clutch on to your memories of who that person was or what this country was? Do you move forward because that's how time works? It moves linearly. You can't move backward. Do you become obsessed with this idea of what caused this and how do we fix it? All the different ways that we see his inner circle react to things, I think is sort of how this country has grappled to understand what happened on that day and what the fallout was from that. This is, we must point out, a tricky metaphor because there are quite a lot of Americans who would wince at the idea of comparing their country to a criminal, no matter how accurate that analogy might or might not be. And this might be, you know, tipping my hand too much in terms of my thoughts on American foreign policy, but I think it almost seems like not at all like he deserved it, because that would be a terrible thing to say, and is a terrible thing to say, but that sort of the markers were there if you knew where to look. I love him like a brother, but he fucking deserves it. It's politically impossible to talk about 9-11 as something that we provoked. That's got Tobias again. That is a that is a reckoning that that America has brought on itself. We like to talk. We, it's much easier to say, you know, the terrorists hate our freedom rather than um, admitting that there that that there were mistakes and, and poor choices on on our part as a, as, as a nation that that we're paying for. Um, you know, I, whether Spike Lee, in you know, intended to fold that into the movie. Maybe that's not even a question, you know, if he intended it or not, maybe it's just there, um, but it's there. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's worth wrestling with that um, question about, about why. And, 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 and um, the, the film intentionally or unintentionally forces you to, to think about that. It's really about morality, you know what I mean? And it's really about the way that every single person in the movie has made compromises because of what they got from a certain equation. With Monty Brogan. From Monty. Monty was the source of things and people made accommodations or things and everybody feels guilty. That, you know, everybody feels guilty for what they took, what they did, what they didn't say, etc. It's about the moment where you gotta pay up. And what does that mean? Right? I mean, for Monty, he has to do the seven years. And I think there is something to be said about this movie and why it still hits hard in that sense of you did it to yourself and i think you could make that argument very well that like if you're watching this movie from a certain perspective and you have a certain idea of american history like empires fall and actions have consequences and things happen that you might not ever be able to reverse course from and we see that now because the things that happened that we did as a result of 9-11 are still happening and we're still doing. And Democratic presidents and Republican presidents and changes of opinion and all that stuff, none of that has really altered course for how we have responded. Because we always have choices. There are always choices to make, 
moral and immoral. We can choose to pay up, to do our time, to take our responsibility. Or we can make another choice. And that's what the extended fantasy sequence at the end of 25th Hour is all about. Monty's dad is driving him up the Henry Hudson Parkway, and he makes an offer. Give me the word and I'll take a left turn. Left turn to where? Take the GW Bridge and go west. Get you stitched up somewhere and keep going. Find a nice little town. On the way, stop in Chicago for a Cubs game. You always told me you wanted to see Ridley Field. Dad. I'm saying it. If you want it, if that's what you want, I'll do it. And he describes a plan to drive his son out west, to never look back, to drop him off in a nowhere town where he can start a new life. I mean, that whole sequence is basically the last temptation of Christ, right? I mean, of, 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 of you know, before, you know, Monty ter- turns himself in, he gets to um, uh, imagine what it's like when he, if he doesn't, you know, and, and, and uh, what would that life be like? So you go and you never come back. never come home. And in this fantasy, we see this little American flag flapping on the antenna of Monty's father's SUV. No visual choice in a Spike Lee movie is accidental. And maybe in this sequence, Monty is standing in for America, asked to choose between reckoning with the consequences of his past or fleeing into a fantasy of the future. What I love, too, is that the fantasy sequence is full of all these, like, Americana, not like cliches necessarily, but the things we tell ourselves about starting over in this country, right? Like, go out west, (laughs) you know, like, go west, young man. Like, go into this place that you can claim as your own with your homestead and a new identity and a new life and you'll start a family and you'll populate the earth like all of these like based in like heteronormative christianity like the things that we used to conquer this country and who actually was here first you've never been west of philly have you this is a beautiful country money it's beautiful out there looks like a different world mountains hills cows farms and white churches and so i just i love that again we sort of go back like you said to the base instincts what is america what's the myth of america and that's what brian cox is trying to sell him and you know monty indulges it for a second and he imagines it all and he sees himself in it and almost feels like imagining the fantasy is enough and he just keeps, you know, he just keeps going. And I do love that he accepts it. I think that is the thing that makes sense for the character. Um, but I also love that everything that he is rejecting is the dream that we tell ourselves it's okay to have and we deserve to have and we should have. And he says, you know, I actually don't deserve it and I shouldn't have it. It's a classic Hollywood ending and a New York ending, because it poses the idea that the future is not predetermined and that the possibilities are endless. Monty considers those possibilities, but his dad does not take the turn because to do so would be a betrayal of what came before. Spike Lee and David Benioff are telling a story of contemplation, of reflection, and of guilt. And throughout the film, in both his flashbacks to the past and his reckonings with the present, 
Monty Brogan is trying to take stock of his life and atone for his sins. And many Americans took 9-11 and the days after to measure what it truly means to be an American. In his book, Parallel Lines, Guy Westwell writes, 9-11 is the 24th hour implied by the title. The 25th hour is what comes after, which Lee's film tells us looks a lot like prison. But for all the talk of change in American attitudes and American media, mainstream movie making didn't really change all that much beyond that strange period of delayed release dates and digitally erased buildings. In that period, pre-2001 blockbusters like Armageddon saw their scenes of urban attack toned down for television airings, lest they summon up the shadow of 9-11. Yet in the years that followed, films like War of the Worlds, Cloverfield, Man of Steel, and The Avengers called upon imagery explicitly recalling 9-11 to tell their stories of science fiction and fantasy escapism. It was a paradox that didn't make sense until you really thought about it. I mean, don't you think that's just like American mythology? You know, like, is that like taking an image that we all recognize and repurposing it so that it's triumphant? I mean, I think like so many of those movies end in us winning, right? Like, I think so much of that is just us trying to put something positive and concluding that narrative for ourselves in a certain way. You know, lots of movies get made and lots of movies, you know, kind of flow past, but I feel like the ones that stick stick a little bit because they have like a time stamp on them you know they have a real they have an imprint of the moment that people were living in and you know even just this sequence it's like it kind of gives me chills because it it it, i think we were the first production to shoot after 9-11 first and the best (laughs) but i think i think no one has done a film that that really showed i feel new york city an aftermath of, of 9-11 like we did. It's an invaluable document. There were, weren't, I don't know of anyone else who, I can't think of another example of someone who did that, certainly to the extent that the 25th Hour did. And sure, there's plenty of documentary footage, but I, I think it's important to have an artist, uh, of, particularly an artist of, of Lee's caliber, uh, doing that. I'd completely forgotten that this, the closing credits of this film ends with a song from Bruce Springsteen's Rising, which to me is the, the other great um, pop cultural document of, of, of that moment. And, and these were people, these were artists who I feel like did it because they felt a responsibility to uh, process this moment through through what they did anyway. And, and I think they both rose to the occasion really, um, really well. But I think the reality is we all lived it, right? I mean, all of us have memories of those days and what they were and what they felt like and the omnipresence of the news coverage and seeing how New York looked. And I think by incorporating it and directly addressing it only a couple of times. I think Spike Lee honors the wound. It was a wound for all of us. And I think that he gives it, gives the narrative some greater urgency and honors what we all felt by incorporating it and saying that in that moment, in that time, 
It was a shadow that none of us could escape. Everybody was dealing with it in some way or another. And I think to ignore that is almost a, a insult to what all of us lived through. What do we have from 9-11? What do we have? I mean, we had we we fortunately had, you know, Spike Lee in pre-production on 25th Hour and, and you know, and he was going to put that in the movie. He that's that because that's who he is. We don't have that. I mean, we miss that crucial moment. Um, it makes me think about what what the pandemic movies are going to be like in a way. Like like this was an important moment too, and this was a transformative moment for in everyone's lives. Um, do we pretend that it didn't happen? You know, uh, and uh, and what are the consequences of that? Because there's a lot of things that the pandemic revealed about who we are uh, as Americans. Um, uh, so I, I'm hoping that, that, that the Spike Lees of the world, that the filmmakers who are really committed to making fiction films that are also, also documentaries in their way um, can find their way to comment about that too because I think we need filmmakers who um, can uh, you know, address what is really happening you know, <laughs> in a city like New York. I'm at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum in Lower Manhattan, standing in one of the reflecting pools that mark where the Twin Towers once reached into the New York City skyline. And it's impossible to stand on this ground and not get emotional about what happened here, about the lives that were lost, the brave men and women who entered these buildings knowing they might not make it out, and the survivors, all of them left behind. But that emotion was also used as a weapon in the fall of 2001. You know, I remember asking my uncle, who was not, to put it mildly, an admirer of this president, about the attacks a few days later. And I'll never forget his reply. He said, I think we just wrote a blank check to the last people on earth we should hand one to. He wasn't from New York, and he wasn't talking about New York, but that was true here too. No one thought Republican investment banker Michael Bloomberg had a real shot at becoming New York's next mayor. And the endorsement of Rudy Giuliani didn't mean that much. He was about to leave office spectacularly unpopular. But after September 11th, Giuliani became the face of New York. He was dubbed America's mayor in national media. He was named Times Person of the Year for 2001. And so his endorsement now carried enough weight for Bloomberg to eke out a 2% margin of victory, only 30,000 votes that November. Bloomberg used billions of dollars in federal financial assistance to incentivize businesses and residents to stay or return to lower Manhattan. He promised to run New York like a business. He said, quote, the city will think of its job-creating, tax-paying employers, big and small, as valued clients. And he used the powers of his office and his pro-business policies to further widen the already insurmountable wealth gap in New York. And he used the specter of 9-11 to oversee a surveillance apparatus in the city, an NYPD program of secret monitoring of Muslims in places of worship and schools and cafes. So maybe that, more than any specific reference or literary metaphor, 
is what makes 25th Hour stick in the memory to this tragedy the way it does. Because in the months and years after September 11th, everyone from Bloomberg and Giuliani to Bush and Obama to Glenn Beck and Aaron Sorkin tried to flatten our response to it into these easily managed and wildly simplified ideas of unity and healing and moving forward. Spike Lee didn't do that. In his post-9-11 New York, shit is messy. And he made a film about unease and paranoia and sorrow and regret. And for a lot of us in New York and around the world, those feelings have never really gone away. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the forthcoming book, Fun City Cinema, New York and the Movies That Made It, out on October 12th, 2021 from Abrams Books and available now for pre-order. Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Holt. Special thanks to today's guests. You can find Roxana Haddadi's work at Pajiba, Crooked Marquee, AV Club, Vulture, and Polygon. And you can follow her on Twitter at Roxana underscore Haddadi. Keith Phipps' byline is at GQ, Vulture, TV Guide, and Uproxx, among others. He's the former editor of the AV Club and one of the founders of The Dissolve. And his new book, Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career, is out March 29th, 2022. He's on Twitter at kphipps3000. You can read Scott Tobias at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Ringer, Guardian, and other fine publications. He's also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. You can follow him on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Jennifer Westfeldt's films Friends with Kids and Ira and Abby are now streaming on HBO Max. And you can watch Kissing Jessica Stein on your digital outlet of choice. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. You can listen to episodes, read show notes, and pre-order your copy of Jason's book. And if you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at Fun City Cinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at BrainwashedLib, and Jason is at Jason-Bailey. And an extra special thanks to all of our patrons. This week we're sending a special shout-out to supporter Brendan McDonald. If you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema. You'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, related writings, and more. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. So what are we doing tonight? Before you kill yourself, that is. <laughs>